The Sixth Stage Now I saw the pilgrims continue on to the ascent not far from there, for they determined it to be a possibility for the pilgrims. This happened to be the place from which Christian had first caught sight of Faithful, his brother. It was here the pilgrims sat down, rested, ate and drank, and celebrated because they had been delivered from this dangerous enemy. As they sat there eating, Christiana asked Greatheart whether or not he'd been hurt in the battle. He said, No, except a little on my flesh, but that's not so bad, for it's proof of my love for my master and you, and by grace it shall be a means to increase my reward at the end. But weren't you afraid, good sir, when you saw him come at you with his club? Christiana asked. Greatheart said, It is my duty to not trust in my own ability so that I may rely only on him who is stronger than all. Christiana thought about that for a moment. But what did you think when he brought you down to the ground with that first blow? Why, I thought that in this way my master was served, and it was he who conquered in the end. Scripture Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we who live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 10 and 11. Matthew said, While you all can think what you please, I think God has been wonderfully good to us. He brought us out of this valley and delivered us from the hand of this enemy. As far as I am concerned, I see no reason why we should ever distrust our God again since he has given us such a testimony of his love now in such a place. Then the group of them got up and continued forward on their journey. Now a little ahead of them stood an oak. When they came to it, they found an old pilgrim fast asleep under it. They recognized he was a pilgrim by his clothes, his staff, and the belt he wore around his waist. So the guide, Greatheart, awoke the old gentleman. As the old man opened his eyes, he cried out, What's the matter? Who are you and what is your business here? Greatheart tried to calm the man down. Calm down, he said. Come on, we're all friends. But the old man rushed to his feet and was on guard because he did not know them or what they were. Then the guide said, My name is Greatheart. I am the guide of these pilgrims who are going to the celestial country. My name is Mr. Honest, the old pilgrim said. I ask your forgiveness for my reaction, for I feared you were part of the group who some time ago robbed Little Faith of his money. Now that I'm more awake and aware of my surroundings, I can see you are more honest people. Greatheart asked, What do you think you could have done to help yourself if we were in fact those people? What could I have done? the man said. Why, I would have fought to my last breath. If I had, I am sure you could never have bested me. For a Christian can never be overcome unless he surrenders himself. Well said, Father Honest, Greatheart said. For by this I know you are a man of the right kind, for you have spoken the truth. And by this I also know that you know what true pilgrimage is, the old pilgrim said for everyone else thinks we are the quickest of any to overcome. Well, Greatheart said, 
Now that we have happily met, please let me ask where you're from. I came from the town of Stupidity. It's the town just beyond the City of Destruction. Oh, you're that countryman, Greatheart said. I've heard you called Old Honesty. The old gentleman blushed. Not honesty in the abstract, but honest is my name. I have to admit, I wish my nature agreed with my name. But, sir, how is it that you've heard of me? I heard of you from my master, Greatheart said. He knows everything. But I have often marveled that anyone from your hometown became a pilgrim, for your town is worse than the city of destruction. Mr. Honest nodded. I agree. Most of us from stupidity lie more often than the sun shines, and because of it we're cold and senseless in heart. But even if a man were inside a mountain of ice, if the sun of righteousness rises upon him, his frozen heart will experience a thaw. And that is exactly what happened to me. I believe it, Father Honest, I believe it. For I know what you say is true. Then the old gentleman greeted all the pilgrims with a holy kiss of love, asked their names, and how they had fared since they set out on their pilgrimage. Christiana stepped forward first. I'm sure you've heard my name, for good Christian was my husband, and these four are his children. She motioned toward her boys. You won't believe how the old gentleman reacted to the news of who she was. He skipped, he smiled, and he blessed them with a thousand good wishes. He said, I have heard so much about your husband and his travels, and the wars which he endured in his days. Be assured, the name of your husband resounds all through these parts of the world. He is famous for his faith, his courage, his endurance, and his sincerity. Then he turned to the boys and asked their names, which they told him one by one. He greeted Matthew and said, Matthew, you are like Matthew, the tax collector, not in wickedness, but in virtue. Scripture And as Jesus passed forth from there, he saw a man named Matthew, sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Matthew 9, verse 9 He turned his attention to Samuel and said, He is like Samuel the prophet a man of faith and prayer. Scripture Moses and Aaron are among his priests, and Samuel among those that call upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. Psalm 99, verse 6 And to Joseph he said, You are like Joseph in Potiphar's house, pure, and one who flees from temptation. Scripture and it came to pass, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not hearken unto her, to lie by her, or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and none of those of the house were there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand, and fled, and got outside. Genesis 39, verses 10 through 12. He turned to James, the last of the boys. You are like James, the just, 
and like James the brother of our Lord. Scripture. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Matthew 13, verse 55. Then the boys told him about mercy and how she left her town and her family to come along with their mother and them on pilgrimage. At hearing this, the old honest man turned to mercy and said, Mercy is your name. By mercy you shall be sustained and carried through all the difficulties that assault you along your way until you come to that place where you will look directly at the fountain of mercy with comfort. Scripture Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Matthew 5, verse 7 During all this exchange, Greatheart walked along with his companions, very pleased and smiling at them. As they walked, Greatheart asked the old gentleman if he knew Mr. Fearing, for he had come on pilgrimage from those same parts as the old man. Yes, very well, he said. He was a man who understood the root of the matter, but he was one of the most troublesome pilgrims I ever met in all my days. Greatheart said, I can see you knew him, for you have given a very accurate description of his character. I more than knew him. I was one of his closest companions. I was with him most near the end, though I was also with him when he first started to think about what would come after this life. Greatheart said, I was his guide from my master's house to the gates of the celestial city. Then you knew him to be a troublesome one. I did, Greatheart nodded, but I could bear it well enough. Men of my calling are often entrusted to conduct men such as him. Well, Mr. Honest said, tell us a little about him and how he behaved under your guidance. Well, he was always afraid he would fall short of reaching the place he desired to go. Everything frightened him. I heard that he lay roaring at the slough of despond for more than a month. In all that time, he didn't dare to move on, even though he witnessed several others crossing the slough before him. And many of those people offered to lend him assistance, but he was too afraid to accept it. He wouldn't go forward, and he wouldn't go back again, either. He said he would die if he didn't get to the celestial city, and yet he was discouraged by every difficulty and stumbled over problems as insignificant as straw when tossed in his way. After he had lain at the Slough of Despond a long time, one sunshiny morning he somehow ventured on and finally crossed over, though I don't know the details. He could hardly believe he had reached the other side. I think he had something like a Slough of Despond in his mind, like an internal mire that he carried with him everywhere he went, Otherwise, he wouldn't have been so fearful of everything. So Mr. Fearing came up to the gate. You know the one I mean, the gate at the beginning of this way. There he stood for quite a while before he found the courage to knock. When the gate was opened, he stepped back and let others go before him and said he wasn't worthy. For even though he reached the gate before others, many of them went in before him. There at the gate the poor man stood, shaking and cowering. I dare say that anyone who saw him would have pitied him. Finally, 
he reached for the hammer which hung on the gate. He took it and rapped lightly a time or two. The gate opened to him, but he shrunk back again as he had done before. This time, though, the one who opened the gate stepped out after Mr. Fearing and said, You who tremble, what do you want? With that, Mr. Fearing fell to the ground. He who spoke to him marveled to see him so faint-hearted. So he said to him, Peace be to you. Get up, for I have opened the door to you. Come in, for you are blessed. With that he got up and went through the gate still trembling. Once he was in, he was too ashamed to show his face. Well, you know how it is there. After he had been shown hospitality for a while, he was told it was time to be on his way, and also told the way he should take. So Mr. Fearing went on till he reached our house. But when he arrived and my master came to the interpreter's door, Mr. Fearing behaved the same fearful way as at the gate. He lay there in the cold for a good while before he would say anything. He allowed his fear to paralyze him. The nights were long and cold then. It is sad but true that in his chest pocket Mr. Fearing had a note that would allow him to receive all my master had to offer. He was ready to grant him the comfort of his house and also to provide him with a brave and valiant guide because he himself was so chicken-hearted. Yet, even though Mr. Fearing understood all this, he was still afraid to call at the door. Instead, he lay here and there near the door until the poor man was almost starved, and his depression was so great that even though he saw several others knocking and entering in, he was just too afraid to even try. Finally, I think I looked out of the window and saw a man lying here and there around the door, and I went out to him. I asked him what he was doing there, but the poor man looked at me with tear-filled eyes without saying a word. I figured out what he wanted, so I went inside and told the others in the house about him, and we explained the situation to our Lord. So he sent me out again to invite Mr. Fearing to come in, but I have to say it wasn't easy. Finally he did come in, and my Lord lovingly carried nourishment to him. There wasn't much food at the table, but the master took some of it and placed it upon the table in front of Mr. Fearing. Then Mr. Fearing presented the note from his pocket, and my lord read it and said his desires would be granted. So when he had been there a good while, Mr. Fearing seemed to gather a little courage and to be a little more comfortable. For my master, you must know, is one who is very kind and compassionate especially toward those who are afraid. Therefore he introduced everything to him in ways that might encourage him the most. Well, when he experienced all the things at the house, he was ready to take his journey to the celestial city, as Christian had done before him. My lord gave him a bottle of spirits and some rich foods to eat, and so we set out together, and I led the way. But Mr. Fearing hardly said a thing. Instead, he sighed aloud as we walked together. When we came to the place where the three fellows were hanged, he said he doubted that he wouldn't end up the same way. Yet he seemed glad when he saw the cross and the sepulchre. There he wanted to linger a little, and it seemed to cheer him up for a little while. 
When he came to the hill difficulty, he didn't hesitate at that, nor did he fear the lions very much. This might seem strange for one so fearful, but his troubles were not related to things like these. His fear was about whether or not he would be accepted at the end of his journey. I got him in at the house beautiful, I think before he was really willing. Once he was inside, I introduced him to the young women who lived there, but he was too ashamed to take advantage of their company. He just wanted to be alone, yet he always loved a good talk and often stood out of sight and listened to others' conversations. He also loved to see ancient things and to think about them. After we left that house, he told me he loved the visit. In fact, he enjoyed the last house as well as the one at the gate and the interpreter's house. But even though he loved the ancient things he found in these places, he couldn't find the courage to ask about them. When we left the house beautiful, we walked down the hill into the Valley of Humiliation, and he entered the valley like one without a care, for he thought he might be happy at last. And I think there was a kind of understanding between that valley and him, for I never saw him in better spirits in all his pilgrimage than he was in that valley. There he lay down and embraced the ground and kissed the flowers. Scripture. It is good for the man if he bears the yoke from his youth. He shall sit alone and keep silence because he has borne it upon him. He shall put his mouth in the dust. If so be, there may be hope. Lamentations 3, verses 27 through 29. He woke every morning by break of day and regularly walked to and fro in the valley. But when he reached the entrance of the valley of the shadow of death, I thought I might lose him. Not that I thought he would turn around to go back, for I knew he abhorred that idea. His problem was that he was ready to die of fear. He cried out, Oh, the hobgoblins will get me! The hobgoblins will get me! I couldn't snap him out of it. He made so much noise. If they did happen to hear him, it was enough to encourage them to come and attack us. But one thing I noticed as we entered this valley, was how quiet it was. I'd never seen it so quiet, before or since. I suppose the Lord specially restrained those enemies and commanded them not to meddle until Mr. Fearing had passed through the valley. It would be too tedious to tell you all the details, so I'll just tell you about two more aspects of the journey with Mr. Fearing. The first is when he came to Vanity Fair. You should have seen him there. I thought he was going to fight with all the men in the fair and that we'd end up getting knocked on the head. His temper was hot against their habitual sinful acts. Upon the enchanted ground, he was very alert and wakeful. But when he reached the river and realized there was no bridge, he again became dejected. Now, now, he said, I will be drowned forever and never see the comfort of the face I have come so many miles to behold. And at this time I noticed something very remarkable. At this particular time, the water of that river was lower than I'd ever seen it in all my life. So he finally crossed over without getting much more than his feet wet. When he was going up to the gate, I said goodbye to him and wished him a good reception above. He said, 
I shall, I shall. Then we parted ways, and I never saw him again. So it seems all went well for him in the end, Mr. Honest asked. Greatheart nodded. Absolutely. I never had doubts about him. He was a man of worthy spirit, but most of the time he felt very low, and that made his life very arduous for himself and very troublesome to others. Scripture O Lord God of my saving health, I cry day and night before thee. Let my prayer come before thee. Incline thine ear unto my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near unto Sheol. I am counted with those that go down into the pit. I am as a man that has no strength. Freed among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, whom thou dost remember no more, and they are cut off from thy hand. Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the deeps. Thy wrath lies hard upon me, and thou hast afflicted me with all thy waves. Selah. Psalm 88, verses 1 through 7. He had positive attributes as well. He was more sensitive to sin than many others, and he was so afraid of hurting others that he often didn't do things that he thought might offend, even if they were lawful. Scripture. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine, nor to do anything by which thy brother stumbles or is offended or is sick. Romans 14, verse 21. Mr. Honest's brow furrowed. But why would such a good man be forced to live so much of his life in such a disheartening way? There are two possible reasons, Greatheart said. One is that the wise God desires it. Some people must make a lot of noise, and others must weep. Scripture. Jesus said unto him, If I will that he tarry until I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. John 21, verse 22. The other is best explained if we look at it like music. Think of Mr. Fearing as the one who played a deep tone, while he and those like him sound notes that are more doleful than the notes of other music. Some say the bass notes are the foundation of music. And for my part, I don't like that statement because while it reflects a mindful sorrow, it does not address the weakness of mind, some experience. The first string the musician usually touches is the bass, when he intends to put all in tune. God also plays upon this string first, when he sets the soul in tune for himself. Only there was the imperfection of Mr. Fearing in that he couldn't play other music until later when he neared the end. I've made this bold metaphorical statement to help mature the understanding of young readers, and because in the book of Revelation, the saved are compared to a company of musicians who play upon their trumpets and harps and sing their songs before the throne. Scripture And when he had taken the book, the four animals and the twenty-four elders fell on their faces before the Lamb, each one of them having harps and golden vials full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Revelation 5, verse 8 Mr. Honest said, 
By what you have said, Mr. Fearing was a very zealous man. He didn't fear difficulties, lions, or vanity fair. It was only sin, death, and hell that filled him with terror, because he had some doubts about his share in that celestial country. You are right, Greatheart said. Those are the things that troubled him, and they, as you have correctly observed, rose from the weakness of his mind. His fearfulness was not from weakness of spirit pertaining to the practical aspect of living a pilgrim's life. I believe, like the proverb says, that he could have bit a firebrand and withstood it in his own way, and not feared it in the least. But the things with which he was oppressed, no man could ever help him shake off easily. Then Christiana said, Hearing about Mr. Fearing and his struggles has done me good, because I thought nobody else was like me. But now I see a similarity between this good man and me. We just differed in two ways. His troubles were so great that they showed to everyone around him, but mine I have kept inside. His struggle made his life so difficult that he could not knock at the door to the very houses willing to show him hospitality, while my trouble was such that it made me always knock even louder. Mercy said, I'd also like to speak my heart if you'd permit me, for I must say I too am similar to him in another way, for I've always been more fearful of the lake and the loss of place in paradise than I've been about the loss of other things. Oh, I thought, if only I had the assurance to know I had a place there, it would be enough. I'd give up everything I have in all this world to win it. Matthew said, I've experienced fear too, but for me it was a fear that perhaps I wasn't saved, that I lacked within me the thing that accompanies salvation. But now that I know how it was for Mr. Fearing, and that he arrived at the celestial city and gained admittance, why wouldn't it go well with me too? His brother James said, No fears, no grace. Though there isn't always grace where there is the fear of hell, you can be sure there is no grace where there is no fear of God. Well said, James, Greatheart said. You have hit the mark of this matter, for the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Scripture The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Proverbs 9, verse 10. Those who haven't reached the beginning don't have the middle nor the end. In other words, until that point, they haven't feared hell. We have talked enough about Mr. Fearing for now, but let's finish off our discussion with this farewell to the good man. Well, Master Fearing, you did fear your God and were afraid of doing anything while here that would have you betrayed and you feared the lake and pit, would others do so too? As for them who lack your wit, they themselves undo. Now I saw that they still went on with their talk. For after Greatheart ended the discussion about Mr. Fearing, Mr. Honest began to tell the others of another traveler by the name of Mr. Self-Will. He pretended to be a pilgrim, Mr. Honest said, but I am convinced that he never came in at the gate that stands at the head of the way. Did you talk with him about it? Greatheart asked. Mr. Honest nodded. 
Yes, more than once or twice, but he was always self-willed, doing what was right in his own eyes. He didn't care what others said or did, and he didn't care to enter into discussion or argument regarding the truth, nor was he willing to learn from others' examples. All he did was what he wanted to do, and follow his own way and nothing else. Please tell me more about the principles he held, for I'm sure you can tell me, since you spent time with the man. Mr. Honest said, He held that a man could follow the vices as well as the virtues of pilgrims, and that if he lived his life doing both, he would still certainly be saved. Greatheart frowned. How could he think that? I could understand if he had said it is possible for the best pilgrim to be guilty of the vices as well as to partake of the virtues. If that's what he said, then he would have been correct. For while we are on this side of the river, we are not expected to live absolutely vice-free. However, we are to watch and strive to live vice-free. But if I understood you correctly, this is not what he meant but rather he meant that it was allowable for a pilgrim to continue on doing as he pleased, right or wrong. Mr. Honest bobbed his head earnestly. Yes, that's exactly what I meant. That's what he believed, and that's how he lived his life. But what did he base this belief on? Greatheart asked. Why, he said he had scripture that backed him up and permitted him to live this way. Greatheart's brows raised in mild surprise. Really? Scripture? Can you give us a few examples? I will try to explain it as he did. For instance, he said to have other men's wives was permitted because David, God's beloved, had done so. His reasoning was that since David did it, he could do it. He said that having more than one woman was permitted because it was a thing practiced by Solomon. He also said that Sarah and the godly midwives of Egypt lied, and so did Rahab when she hid the spies, and therefore he could lie. He also said that the disciples went at the bidding of their master and untied the ass that did not belong to them and took it, and so it is fine for him to take what belongs to others too. He said that Jacob got the inheritance from his father through guile and dishonesty, and therefore he could practice such things as well. Greatheart shook his head thoughtfully. He has certainly raised the lowest types of behavior as his examples. Are you sure this was his opinion? Yes, Mr. Honest said. I heard him plead his case for it, and he pointed to Scripture to support such beliefs and to bring arguments for it into discussion with others. Greatheart said, His is an erroneous opinion that should not be allowed in the world. Let me clarify one thing, Mr. Honest said. He did not say that this behavior is permitted for everyone, but only for those who did such things before they were saved. For them it is, according to him, permitted to continue doing the same. But this is a false conclusion, for it's the same as saying that because good men, until now, have been weak and sinned, that it is okay for them to continue in this way and to do so on purpose and without any shame. 
Or it is like saying, because a child is blown by a blast of wind or stumbles over a stone and falls in the mire and becomes filthy, that he should willfully lie down and wallow like a pig in the muck. Who would have thought that anyone could have been so blinded by the power of lust to this extent? But what is written must be held as true. They stumbled at the word, being disobedient, to which they were also appointed. Scripture. And a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to those who stumble at the word, not obeying in that for which they were ordained. 1 Peter 2, verse 8. His supposing that people who addict themselves to their vices may also have godly virtues is a strong delusion. To eat up the sin of God's people, Scripture, they eat up the sin of my people, and in their iniquity they raise up their soul. Hosea 4, verse 8. Like a dog licks up filth, does not reveal that such a person even possesses virtues. Nor can I believe that one who holds to this opinion can presently have faith or love in him. I know you have made strong objections against him regarding this view. When you did, what could he say for himself? Mr. Honest shrugged. Why, he says to live life based on one's own opinion seems abundantly more honest than to live in a way that is contrary to it. Greatheart let out a deep sigh. That is a very wicked answer. For if we freely let our lusts reign, it is sin. While it seems bad to hold back such feeling based on our opinions, yet not to do so is worse. When a person stumbles accidentally, it's bad enough. But allowing your lusts to go unbridled leads into the snare. Mr. Honest said, There are actually many who think as this man does or who do not speak out like he does, but they do purposely make going on pilgrimage seem of little importance. Greatheart nodded his head in resignation. That is the sad truth, but he who fears the king of paradise shall come out from those who believe this way. Christiana said, There are strange opinions in the world. I knew one person who said that there is time enough to repent when it comes time to die. That's not very wise, Greatheart said. If that unwilling man were to plan a journey, and he had a week to run twenty miles to complete the trip, would he defer his journey to the last hour of that week? You're right, Mr. Honest said, yet most of those who count themselves pilgrims do just that. I am, as you see, an old man, and have been a traveler on this road for many a day and I have taken notice of many things. I have seen some who have set out with so much enthusiasm that it seemed as if they would drive all the world before them. And yet, in a few days, they died, like those in the wilderness who never got out to see the promised land. I have also seen some who promised nothing when they first set out to be pilgrims if you saw pilgrims such as these, you would think them unable to survive a day, and yet they proved very good pilgrims. I have seen some who have run quickly forward 
only to have them run back quickly again after a little time. I have seen some who have spoken very well of a pilgrim's life at the beginning, but after a while have spoken just as much against it. I have also heard some who speak positively when they first set out for paradise. They say, there is such a place. But when they almost get there, they come back again and say, there is no such place. I have heard some boast about what they would do if they should be opposed, who even at a false alarm have fled faith, the pilgrim's way, and all. Now as they were on their way, a man came running to meet them and said, Gentlemen, women, and children, if you love life, change directions, for robbers are before you. Greatheart said, They are the three who formerly assaulted little faith, but we're ready for them. So they cautiously continued on their way and looked this way and that wherever there was a turn or place where the villains could try to ambush them. But whether the robbers had heard of Greatheart's reputation, or it was some other reason, the three robbers never even approached the pilgrims. Christiana wished for an inn to refresh herself and her children, because they were weary. Mr. Honest said, There is an inn a short distance ahead of us, where a very honorable disciple by the name of Caius dwells. Scripture Gaius, my host, and of the whole congregation, salutes you. Romans 16, verse 23. They all decided to turn in there and refresh themselves, since the old gentleman had given them such a good report. When they came to the door, they went in without knocking, for folks didn't use to knock at the door of an inn. Then they called for the master of the house, and he came to them so they asked if they might spend the night. Caius said, Yes, gentlemen, if you are true believers, for my house is only for pilgrims. This news made Christiana, Mercy, and the boys happy, because the innkeeper showed love for pilgrims. The pilgrims were appointed rooms. Caius showed one for Christiana, her children, and Mercy, and another for Greatheart and Mr. Honest. Greatheart said, Good Gaius, do you have anything for supper? He gestured toward the others. These pilgrims have come far today and are weary. It is late, Gaius said. Too late to go out to look for food, but what we have here you're welcome to, if that will do. We will be perfectly content with whatever you have in the house, for as much as I have ascertained, you are never needy if you are satisfied with what's on hand. Then Gaius went down and spoke to the cook, whose name was Taste That Which Is Good, and instructed him to get supper ready for so many pilgrims. When he finished, he returned to the pilgrims and said, Come, my good friends, you are welcome to join me. I am glad I have this house and that I am able to show you hospitality. While supper is being prepared, let us sit and entertain one another with some good discussion, if you please. The pilgrims all nodded, and they said they would be delighted to join him. Gaius opened the discussion by asking about Christiana and the others. Whose wife is this older woman, and whose daughter is this young woman? Greatheart motioned toward Christiana and said, 
This woman is the wife of a former pilgrim by the name of Christian, and these are his four children. Then he nodded toward Mercy. The young lady is a friend of hers, one whom she persuaded to come with her on pilgrimage. The boys all take after their father and desire to walk in his steps, and if they come across any place where their father has lain on pilgrimage, or even happen to see the print of his foot, it ministers to them and fills their hearts with joy, and they crave to lie or walk in the same way. Gaius said, Is this Christian's wife, and are these Christian's children? I knew your husband's father, and also his father's father. Many good men have come from this stock. Their ancestors first lived in Antioch, Scripture, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch, Acts 11, verse 26. Christians' ancestors, I suppose you've heard your husband talk of them, were very worthy men. They have, above any others I know of, shown themselves men of great virtue and courage for the Lord of the pilgrims, his ways, and those who loved him. I've heard of many of your husband's ancestors who have stood all manner of trials for the sake of the truth. Stephen, who was one of the first of the family from which your husband's line sprang, was stoned to death. Scripture. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, impute not this sin to their charge. And having said this, he fell asleep in the Lord. Acts 7, verses 59 and 60. James, another from that same generation, was slain with the edge of the sword. Scripture. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Acts 12, verse 2. To say nothing of Paul and Peter. Men anciently related to the family from which your husband came, and Ignatius, who was thrown to the lions, Romanus, whose flesh was cut by pieces from his bones, and Polycarp, who played the man in the fire when they tried to burn him at the stake. When the flames didn't hurt him, they stabbed him. Then there was he who was hung up in a basket in the sun for the wasps to eat and he whom they stuffed into a sack and cast into the sea to be drowned. T'would be impossible to count all from that family who suffered injuries and death for the love of a pilgrim's life. But I can't help but be glad to see that your husband has left behind four fine boys such as these. I hope they will endure and carry on their father's name and walk in his steps and that they eventually arrive at the same final destination as their father. In reality, sir, Greatheart said, the lads are likely to do just that, for they seem enthusiastically to choose their father's ways. For this reason, Christian's family is likely to continue to spread abroad and to be numerous upon the face of the earth. Let Christiana look for an appropriate young woman to which her sons may be betrothed so that the name of their father and the house of his ancestors may never be forgotten in the world. Mr. Honest said, It would be a pity if his family should become extinct. It cannot fail, but it can become diminished. But let Christiana take my advice, and it will be sustained. 
and Christiana. He turned to speak directly to her. I am glad to see you and your friend Mercy together here. If I may offer advice, I suggest you take Mercy to one of your closest relations. In fact, if she will consider the idea, I suggest she be given to Matthew, your oldest son, as a wife. This is the way to preserve future generations here on the earth. So these two young people were matched, and over time they were married. But we can tell more about that later. Gaius's advice continued. I will now speak on the behalf of women to take away the disgrace. For as death and the curse came into the world by a woman, Scripture, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was desirable to the eyes, and a tree of covetousness to understand, she took of its fruit, and ate, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he ate. Genesis 3 verse 6 So life and health also came into the world in the same way. God sent forth his Son, made of a woman. Scripture But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Galatians 4 verse 4 It is clear how much women who were born later detested what the first mother did. You can see it in how much women in the Old Testament desired children, for they looked forward to the fact that this or that woman might become the mother of the Savior of the world. I will say again that when the Savior came, women rejoiced in him more than either man or angel. Scripture And she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in my ears, the babe leapt in my womb for joy. And blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. Then Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. Luke 1, verses 42 through 46. I have never read about any man giving even one coin to Christ, while the women who followed him ministered to him of their means. Scripture. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod Stuart, and Susanna, and many others who ministered unto him of their substance. Luke 8, verses 2 and 3. It was a woman who washed his feet with tears. Scripture. And behold, a woman who had been a sinner in the city, when she knew that Jesus sat at food in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he spoke within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have something to say unto thee. 
and he said, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. The one owed five hundred denarius, and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he released both from their debt. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thy house. Thou didst give me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in has not ceased to kiss my feet. Thou didst not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I say unto thee, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. Luke 7, verses 37 through 48. And a woman anointed his body at the burial. Scripture. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. John 11, verse 2. It was the women who wept when he was going to the cross. Scripture. And there followed him a great company of people and of women who also bewailed and lamented him. Luke 23, verse 27. And women stayed with him as he hung from the cross. Scripture. And many women were there beholding afar off who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him among whom was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Matthew 27, verse 55 and 56. Women also accompanied his body to the sepulchre when he was buried. Scripture. And there was Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary, sitting over against the sepulchre. Matthew 27, verse 61. And women were the first to be with him on his resurrection morning. Scripture Now upon the first of the Sabbaths, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulchre, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and certain others with them. Luke 24, verse 1 And women were the first to bring news of his resurrection to his disciples. Scripture Although also certain women of our company made us astonished, who before daybreak were at the sepulchre. And when they did not find his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, who said that he was alive. Luke 24, verses 22 and 23. Based on these examples and more, it is clear women are highly favored and shares with us in the grace of life. Now the cook sent a message to let them know supper was almost ready and to set the table with a cloth, plates, salt, and bread. Matthew said, Just seeing the tablecloth and all the preparation for supper makes me even hungrier than before. Gaius said, Let all the truths of the gospel minister to you in the same way in this life, stirring a great desire to sit at the supper of the great king in his kingdom. 
for all preaching, books, and established rites and ceremonies here on earth are like laying the tablecloth, plates, and salt upon the table. When compared with the feast which our Lord will prepare for us when we come to his house. Supper was served. First, a right shoulder roast, which represented a heave offering, was brought to the table, followed by the breast of the wave offering. Each was set on the table to remind the pilgrims to begin their meal with prayer and praise to God. In the same way, David lifted the heave shoulder and wave breast, along with his heart up to God, to show where his heart lay. Following this, he used to play his harp, Scripture, and the waved breast and elevated shoulder shall ye likewise eat in a clean place, thou and thy sons and thy daughters with thee. For they are thy due and thy sons' due, which are given out of the sacrifices of the peace of the sons of Israel, with the offerings of the fat, which are to be lit on fire. They shall bring the shoulder which is to be elevated, and the breast which shall be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be thine, and thy sons with thee, by a perpetual statute, as the Lord has commanded. Leviticus 10, verses 14 and 15. These two dishes were very fresh and good, and they all ate heartily. Next, a bottle of wine, red as blood, was brought to the table. Scripture, and thou didst drink the blood of the grape, pure wine. Deuteronomy 32, verse 14. Gaius said to them, Drink freely. This is the true juice of the vine that makes the heart of God and man glad. So they drank and were merry. Next a dish of fresh, delicious milk was served. Gaius said, Let the boys have that to help them grow. Scripture, having therefore left all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all murmurings as newborn babes, desire the rational milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby in health. 1 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2. Among the courses they brought up a dish of butter and honey. This time Gaius said, Eat freely of this. For this is good to cheer up and strengthen your mind in understanding and when making judgments. This was our Lord's dish when he was a child. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Scripture. He shall eat butter and honey, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Isaiah 7 verse 15. Next they brought a dish of fresh, tasty apples to the table. Matthew asked, May we eat apples, since it was by this fruit the serpent deceived our first mother? Gaius nodded. Apples were the fruit by which we were deceived. Yet sin, not apples, has defiled our souls. It is not the actual eating of the apple that corrupts. To eat this fruit does us good. For it is written, Drink of his flagons then, ye church, his dove, and eat his apples those who are sick from love. Song of Solomon 2, verse 5. Then Matthew said, I had misgivings because a while back I was sick because I ate fruit. Gaius said, Forbidden fruit will make you sick, but not what our Lord has allowed. While they were talking about this, another dish was presented, 
This one was a dish filled with nuts. Scripture. I went down into the garden of nuts to see the fruits of the valley and to see whether the vines flourished and the pomegranates budded. Song of Solomon 6, verse 11. Some at the table said, Nuts ruin tender teeth, especially the teeth of children. When Gaius heard this, he said, Hard texts are nuts. I will not call them cheaters. Hard shells keep the kernel from the eaters. Open the shells and you shall have the meat. These have been brought to the table for you to crack and eat. Then the pilgrims were very merry and sat at the table a long time, talking about many things. Then the old gentleman, Mr. Honest, said, My good innkeeper, while we crack your nuts, will you please explain this riddle? A man there was, though some did count him mad. The more he cast away, the more he had. Then they all paid close attention, waiting to see what good words Gaius would have to say. For a moment he sat still. Then he said, He who gives his goods to the poor shall have it returned to him, and ten times more. Joseph's eyes grew wide. I have to say, sir, I did not think you could have figured it out. Oh, Gaius said, I have been trained up in this way a great while. Nothing teaches like experience. Through experience I have gained an understanding of the kindness of the Lord. There are those who scatter and yet increase, and there are those who withhold more than they should, but it leads to poverty. There are those who make themselves rich, yet have nothing, and those who make themselves poor, yet have great riches. Scripture There are those who scatter, and more is added unto them, and there are those who withhold more than is just, but come to poverty. Proverbs 11, verse 24. Then Samuel whispered to Christiana, his mother, and said, Mother, this is a very good man. Let us stay here in his house for a good while, and let my brother Matthew be married here to mercy, before we go any further. Gaius overheard Samuel's suggestion and said, That's a very good idea, my child. As a result, they stayed there more than a month, and mercy was given to Matthew as his wife. And while they stayed there, Mercy made coats and garments to give to the poor, which gave the pilgrims a very good reputation. But let's get back to our story. After supper, the boys were ready to go to bed, for they were weary from traveling. Gaius called someone to show them to their bedchamber, but Mercy said, I will tuck them in. She took them to their bedchamber, tucked them in, and they slept well. But the rest of the group sat up all night, for Gaius and the others enjoyed each other's company so much that they didn't want to say good night. After they talked much about their lord, themselves, and their journey, old Mr. Honest began to nod off. Greatheart said, What? Are you getting drowsy? Come on, here's a riddle for you to think about. Let's hear it, Mr. Honest said. Greatheart said, he who would kill must first be overcome. He who would live abroad first must die at home. Ah, said Mr. Honest, that is a hard one, hard to explain and harder to practice. I will leave it to you, innkeeper, if you please, to expound it. I would like to hear what you have to say. No, Gaius shook his head. 
The riddle was put to you, and you are expected to answer it. So the old gentleman answered thus, He first by grace must conquered be, so that sin will mortify. So he who lives would convince me, unto himself must die. That is right, Gaius said. This answer contains good doctrine and knowledge to be taught to others. Until grace, Jesus Christ, displays itself and overcomes the soul with its glory, it is altogether impossible to oppose sin. For if sin is the cord by which Satan binds the soul, how would it be possible for it to resist before it is loosed from that bondage? Secondly, whether by reason or grace, no one will believe that a man who is a slave to his own corruptions can be a living testament of that grace. And talking about this has brought a story worth telling to mind. There were two men who went on pilgrimage. One began when he was young, the other when he was old. The young man had strong depravities to grapple with. The old man's were weaker due to the deterioration of nature. The young man walked each day in the same way as the older man. Their walk looked the same, but which of them had their graces shining clearest, since both looked to be alike? The young man's, without a doubt, Mr. Honest said, for the one who makes the noblest effort against the greatest opposition provides the strongest evidence, especially when it keeps up with one who is dealing with half as much opposition due to old age. I've noticed that old men often think more of themselves because they no longer struggle with things as they did when they were younger, but they mistakenly take the decline of nature for a gracious conquest over sinful corruptions. The result is that they've been quick to deceive themselves. Indeed, old gracious men are best able to give advice to those who are young, because they have seen most of the meaninglessness of things. Yet, for an old and a young man to set out together, the young one has the advantage of witnessing the clearest discovery of a work of grace within himself, even though the old man's corrupt ways are inevitably the lesser of the two. In this way, they sat talking until the break of day. Now when the family had wakened and were up and about, Christiana told her son James that he should read a chapter. So he read Isaiah 53. When he finished, Mr. Honest asked why it was said that the Savior was to come out of a dry ground, and also that he had no form nor comeliness in him. Start here, Mr. Greatheart said. As for the dry ground, it refers to the Jews, from which Christ came, for they had almost lost all the sap and spirit of faith. They were spiritually dried up, as to the bit about no form or comeliness, the words are spoken to unbelievers who judge based on outward appearance, even though they desire to see into our prince's heart. They judge him by his outside, just like people who don't recognize precious stones when they are covered with a homely crust. When they find one, they just throw it away like a common stone, because they don't know what they've found. Well, Gaius said, while you are here, and since I know Mr. Greatheart is good with his weapons, if you'd like, after we've washed up and eaten, we'll go out into the fields to see if we can do some good. You see, 
About a mile from here, there lives one Slaygood, a giant who annoys those traveling the king's highway in these parts. I have a pretty good idea where his haunt is. He's the master over a number of thieves, and it would be a benefit if we could clear these parts of him. So they all consented and headed out. Mr. Greatheart, with his sword, helmet, and shield, and the rest with spears and staves. When they came to the place where he was, they found him with feeble mind in his hands, for his servants had captured the poor man along the way and brought him to their master. Now the giant was searching him and planned to pick his bones when he was done, for he was a flesh-eater. As soon as he saw Mr. Greatheart and his friends at the mouth of his cave with their weapons, he demanded to know what they wanted. Mr. Greatheart shouted, We want you, for we have come to avenge the fights of the many pilgrims whom you have slain after you dragged them from the king's highway. Therefore come out of your cave to face us. So he armed himself and came out, and they immediately went to battle and fought for more than an hour, and finally stopped to catch their breath. While they paused, the giant asked, Why are you here on my land? To avenge the blood of pilgrims, as I told you before, Greatheart said again. So with that they went to battle again, and the giant pushed Mr. Greatheart back, causing him to lose ground, but he gained it back again. With great confidence he let fly with such bravery at the giant's head and sides that he made the weapon fall from his hand. So he struck the giant and killed him, and cut off his head and brought it back with him to the inn. He also brought along Feeblemind the pilgrim. When they arrived back at the inn, they showed his head to the family, and then took it outside and set it up as a warning to any who might attempt to do the same in the future. They asked Mr. Feeblemind how he fell into the giant's hands. The poor man said, I'm a sickly man, as you see. Since death usually knocks at my door at least once a day, I thought I would never be well at home, so I took up a pilgrim's life. I have travelled here from the town of Uncertain, where I and my father were born. I'm a man of no bodily strength at all, nor of mind. But I thought if all I can do is crawl, I'll spend my life in the pilgrim's way. When I arrived at the gate at the head of the way, the lord of that place freely showed me hospitality. He made no objection against my weakly appearance or my feeble mind. Instead, he gave me everything I needed for my journey and told me to hope to the end. When I came to the house of the interpreter, I received much kindness, and because the hill of difficulty was judged too hard for me, I was carried up it by one of his servants. Indeed, pilgrims gave me much relief, though none were willing to go so mildly as I am forced to do. Yet, as we crossed paths, they encouraged me to be of good cheer, and said that it was the will of their Lord that comfort should be given to the feeble-minded. Scripture We also exhort you, brethren, that you warn those that are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, support the weak, be patient with everyone. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14 
and so after that they went along at their own pace. When I came to a salt lane, this giant met me and told me to prepare for a fight. But alas, I am one who is feeble, he shrugged. So he came and took me, and I was so arrogant I thought because I went along willingly that he would not kill me. And when he got me into his den, I really believed that I would come out alive again. For I have heard that if a pilgrim keeps his whole heart trained on his master when he's taken captive by violence, that by the laws of providence he will not die by the hand of the enemy. I just figured he would rob me, and sure enough that happened. But as you see, I have escaped with my life for which I thank my king as the originator of the plan, and you as the means that brought it to fruition. I expect other violence and contention along the way, but I've resolved to run when I can, to go forward even when I cannot run, and to creep along when I must. The main thing I do is to thank him who loved me, for I'm fixed. My way is before me, and my mind is focused beyond the river that has no bridge, even though I am, as you see, feeble-minded. Old Mr. Honest said, Along your travels, weren't you acquainted with Mr. Fearing, who was also a pilgrim? Acquainted with him? Yes, he came from the town of stupidity which is just four degrees north of the city of destruction. Even though it was far from where I was born, we were still well acquainted, for he was my uncle, my father's brother. He and I have much the same temperament, and though he was a little shorter than me, we still had much the same complexion. Mr. Honest said, I sense that you knew him, and I can see you are related to one another, because you have the same pale complexion as he, and the same look around your eyes. Plus you sound very much like him when you speak. Most people who have known both of us have said that, and besides, what I've seen in him I have, for the most part, found in myself. Come, sir, Gaia said. Be of good cheer, for you are welcome by me and my house. Whatever you think you might need, ask for it freely. And whatever you need my servants to do for you, they will do it gladly. Then Mr. Feeblemind said, This is unexpected kindness, like the sun shining out of a very dark cloud. Did Giant Slaygood intend for me to receive this favor when he stopped me? and decided to let me go no further, and after he rifled through me pockets, did he intend that I should come to your house, and you would be my host? Yet that is what's happened. Now, just as Mr. Feeblemind and Gaius were engaged in this conversation, a man ran up to the house and called at the door. He said, about a mile and a half away, there's a pilgrim struck dead in his tracks by a thunderbolt. His name is Mr. Notright. Alas, Mr. Feeblemind cried out, is he dead? I met with him some days ago when he overtook me. We walked together, and he kept me company until today. 
He was with me when Slaygood the giant took me. Well, he was quick on his feet and escaped before the giant could grab him. But it seems he escaped to die and I was taken to live. What one would think seeks to slay outright often delivers from the saddest plight. That very providence whose face is death often gives life to the lowly. I was taken while he did escape and flee. Hands crossed over and gave death to him and life to me. Now about this time, Matthew and Mercy were married, and Gaius also gave his daughter Phoebe to James, Matthew's brother, as his wife. After the marriage, they stayed about ten days more at Gaius's house, spending their time like as pilgrims used to do. When they were ready to depart, Gaius prepared a feast, and they ate, drank, and were merry. Now the time arrived for them to leave, so Mr. Greatheart called for a settling of their account so he could pay for their lodging. But Gaius told him that at his house it was not the custom for pilgrims to pay for hospitality. He boarded them by the year, but looked for his pay from the good Samaritan, who had promised to faithfully repay him for the costs when he returned. Scripture And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two denarius, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Luke 10, verses 34 and 35. Then Greatheart said to him, Dear friend, you faithfully do whatever you do for the brethren, especially when they are strangers, and they testify about your kindness to the church. You do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of the Lord. Scripture Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatever thou doest regarding the brethren and with the strangers who have borne witness of thy charity before the congregation, whom, if thou wilt help them as is convenient according to God, thou shalt do well. 3 John verses 5 and 6 Then Gaius and his children said goodbye to all of them, and as he said farewell to Mr. Feeblemind, he also gave him something to drink as he traveled the way. But when they were going out the door, Mr. Feeblemind lingered in the house. When Mr. Greatheart saw him dawdling, he said, Please come along with us, Mr. Feeblemind. I will be your conductor and guide, and you shall advance along the way with the rest of the pilgrims. Mr. Feeblemind sighed and said, Alas, I desire a suitable companion. For you are all robust and strong, while, as you see, I am weak. Therefore, instead of coming with you now, I plan to follow at my own pace, so my many infirmities won't become a burden to you or me. Like I told you, I'm a man of a weak and feeble mind, and things that you all can bear upset me and make me weak. As a travelling companion, I don't like laughing, I don't like cheerful clothing, and I don't like useless questions. No, I'm such a weak man that things which others have the freedom to do displease me. 
and I am a very ignorant Christian man, but I still don't know all the truth. Sometimes if I hear people rejoice in the Lord, it bothers me because I don't feel the same way. I'm a weak man among the strong, or like a sick man among the healthy, or as a lamp shunned. I don't know what to do. Scripture The torch is held in low esteem in the thought of him that is prosperous, which was prepared to guard against a slip of the feet. Job 12, verse 5. But brother, Greatheart said, I've been commissioned to comfort the feeble-minded and to support the weak. You must come along with us. We'll wait for you and help you along the way. We'll refrain from talking about preconceived notions and practical things that may upset you. And we'll avoid opinionated disputes, but we will become all things to you rather than leave you behind. Scripture To the weak I became as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to everyone, that I might by all means save some. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22 They spoke all about this while they stood at Gaius's door, and while they were in the heat of their discussion, Mr. Ready to Halt came by with his crutches in his hand, and he was also going on pilgrimage. Mr. Feeblemind turned to the newcomer and said, Man, how did you get here? I was just complaining about how I didn't have a suitable traveling companion. But my wish has come true with your arrival. Welcome, welcome, Mr. Ready to Walt. Mr. Feeblemind smiled brightly. I hope you and I can help one another along the way. Mr. Ready to Halt said, I happily welcome your company rather than to travel alone, my good Mr. Feeblemind. And even though we've just met, I would like to offer you the use of one of my crutches. Mr. Feeblemind held up his hand and shook his head. No, thank you. Well, I appreciate your good intentions. I don't plan to halt before I am lame. Be that as it may, I think when such an occasion arises, they may help me against a dog. Well, if either myself or my crutches can be of a benefit to you, we're at your command, good Mr. Feeblemind. In this way, the group moved forward along the way, with Greatheart and Mr. Honest leading the way, Christiana and her children following next, and bringing up the rear, Mr. Feeblemind walked behind, along with Mr. Ready to Halt on his crutches. Mr. Honest turned to Mr. Greatheart and said, Please, sir, now that we are underway, tell us some of the beneficial things you experienced on pilgrimage before you met us. Greatheart said, With pleasure. I suppose you've heard about how Christian of old met with Apollyon in the Valley of Humiliation, and about the hard times he had to endure as he made his way through the Valley of the Shadow of Death. Also, I'm sure you've heard how Faithful faced difficulty and death by Madame Wanton, with Adam I, with one discontent and shame, four deceitful villains as a man could ever meet upon the road. Mr. Honest nodded. Yes, I've heard of all this, but truly, good Faithful endured the ultimate hardship with shame, but he did not grow weary. 
You're right, for as the pilgrim said it correctly when he said he of all men had the wrong name. But where did Christian and Faithful meet talkative? Mr. Honest asked. For that man was also notable, but not in a good way. He was a confident fool, yet many follow his ways, Greatheart said. He almost enthralled Faithful with his talk. Yes, Greatheart said, but Christian quickly opened his eyes to the error in what Talkative had to say. In this manner they talked and traveled until they came to the place where Evangelist had met with Christian and Faithful, the place in which he had prophesied to them what would happen to them at Vanity Fair. Greatheart pointed out the place. It was here Christian and Faithful met with Evangelist, who prophesied to them of what troubles they would meet with at Vanity Fair. You don't say, Mr. Honest stared about with wide eyes. I dare say it was difficult news he had to deliver to them. Greatheart nodded. That it was, but he also encouraged them at the same time. But what do we say about them? We say things like they were courageous as lions and set their faces like a flint in the face of adversity. Do you remember how fearless they were when they stood before the judge? Mr. Honest rubbed his chin thoughtfully. Well, Faithful suffered bravely. That he did. And as a result, the story relates bold changes that came about from it for Hopeful and some others, for they were converted as a result of his death. Mr. Honest begged Greatheart to continue because he was well acquainted with many of the details he hadn't heard until now. Greatheart smiled. Once Christian passed through Vanity Fair, he met with other difficulties and people, including one Byans, who was an arch-foe. Mr. Honest's brow wrinkled. Byans? Who is he? A very haughty fellow and a downright hypocrite. He is one who shifts his religious views to line up whichever way the world goes, but he's so cunning that he makes sure he never loses profit or suffers for it. He had his mode of religion for every fresh occasion, and his wife was as good at it as he. He flip-flops from one opinion to another and appeals to others to do the same. But as far as I know, he came to a bad end with his selfish motives. I didn't ever hear of any of his children truly coming to fear God either. As far as I know, none of them amounted to anything, even by the world's standards. Now by this time they came within sight of the town of Vanity. When they saw they were so near the town, they talked over how they should pass through the town. Some suggested one thing and others something different. At last Mr. Greatheart said, I have often guided pilgrims through this town, as you know. For this reason, I am acquainted with one Mr. Nason, a man originally from Cyprus, who was an old disciple. Scripture. There went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea, and brought with them one Nason of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. Acts 21, verse 16. We may lodge at his house. If you think that a good option, we will turn in there. Old Honest smiled. I'm content to do that. Christiana agreed. Mr. Feeblemind was content to stay there, and in the same way they all agreed. 
Now you might have guessed it was evening by the time they reached the outskirts of the town, but Greatheart knew the way to the old man's house. So they went there, and Greatheart called at the door, and the old man inside recognized his voice. He quickly opened the door, and they all went inside. Their host, Nason, asked, How far have you traveled today? We have traveled from the house of Gaius, our friend. I declare, Nason said, you have covered a lot of ground. You must be weary. Come sit down. So they eagerly sat down with thanks. Their guide, Greatheart, said, What a warm welcome, Nason. He motioned for the others to come in. Come, this is my friend. He welcomes you all. Yes, I do, Nason said. Whatever you want, just ask for it, and we'll do whatever we can to get it for you. Mr. Honest said, Our greatest need is lodging and good company, and now I hope we have both. Nason smiled. As for lodging, you can see for yourself what it is. But as for good company, that will come about with time and a little effort. Are you willing to have the pilgrims stay here? Nason nodded. I am. So he led them to their respective places and showed them a very clean upper room where they might gather to enjoy each other's company and eat together until it was time for bed. Now they were seated in their places around the table and were in a good mood after their journey. Mr. Honest asked his landlord, Nason, if there were any amount of good people in the town. We have a few, he shrugged. But there are far less compared with them who live the other side. Mr. Honest asked, Is there any way we can go to visit some of them? For the finding of other good men for those who are on pilgrimage is like the appearance of the moon and stars to those sailing upon the seas. Nason stamped with his foot, and his daughter Grace came up. He said, Grace, go tell my friends, Mr. Contrite, Mr. Holy Man, Mr. Love Saints, Mr. Dare Not Lie, and Mr. Penitent, that I have a friend or two at my house that have the desire to see them this evening. So Grace left the house and went to call them. In a short time, they all came and, after introductions and greetings were exchanged, they sat down together at the table. Nason, their landlord, addressed them all. My neighbors, as you see, I have a group of strangers who have come to my house. They are pilgrims who come from far away, and they are going to Mount Zion. But who do you think this is? He pointed his finger at Christiana. It's Christiana, the wife of Christian, the famous pilgrim, who, with faithful his brother, was so shamefully treated in our town. His neighbors stood amazed. They said, We never expected to see Christiana when Grace came to call us to your home. What a pleasant surprise! They asked Christiana about her welfare, and if the young men with her were her husband's sons. When she told them they were, they said, May the king whom you love and serve make you young men like your father and bring you where he is in peace. Once they had all sat down, 
Mr. Honest asked Mr. Contrite and the rest about the current situation in their town. Mr. Contrite said, You can be sure we are fully immersed in the flurry of fair time. It makes it difficult to keep our hearts and spirits in good order when we are in such a troubled and grieved condition. Those of us who live in such places as this and who have to regularly deal with all the things that go on here need to be reminded every moment of the day to be careful and to pay attention to their spiritual health. How are your neighbors now? Are things quiet? Are you free from agitation stirred by high emotions? Mr. Honest asked. Mr. Contrite said, They are very much more restrained now than they were before. You know how Christian and faithful were treated in our town, but lately I'd say they have become far more reserved and less aggressive. I think the blood of faithful is like a load upon them still to this day. For since they burned him, they have been ashamed to burn anyone else. In those days, when Christian visited us, we were afraid to walk the street, but now we can show our heads without fear. Back then, the title of genuine Christian was odious, but now, especially in some parts of our large town, religion is considered honorable. Then Mr. Contrite asked the pilgrims of their own welfare. He said, Please tell me how things have fared with you thus far on your pilgrimage, and tell me about the country through which you have traveled and how the people reacted toward you. Mr. Honest said, The same things happen to us as happens to all wayfaring men. Sometimes our way was free of trouble. Sometimes it was dangerous. Sometimes uphill and sometimes downhill. We never know what to expect with any certainty. The wind is not always at our backs, nor is every person we meet a friend within the way. We have met with some notable difficulties already, and while that is behind us, for the most part we find that old saying true that says, A good man must suffer trouble. Scripture, and all the desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, shall also suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 You talk of difficulties, Mr. Contrite said. What difficulties have you met along with the rest of it? Mr. Honest shook his head. I'm not the one to ask. For the best account, ask Greatheart, our guide. Greatheart didn't hesitate to answer. He said, we have been afflicted with difficulties three or four times already. First, Christiana and her children were tormented by two thugs and they feared they'd be murdered. We've been harassed by giant bloody man, giant maul, and giant Slaygood. For the last, we turned the circumstances in our favor, and instead of him harming us, we attacked him and escaped. After that, we spent some time at the home of Gaius, my host and that of the whole church. While we were there, we were persuaded to take our weapons with us and to go see if we might come across any who were enemies to pilgrims. We'd heard there was one in the region. Now Gaius knew the area where he lived better than me, so we searched and combed the area until we finally discovered the mouth of his cave. We were pleased and bolstered our spirits. We approached his den and when we drew close to the mouth of the cave, we found he had dragged this poor man, he pointed to Mr. Feeblemind, 
into his cave by mere force. He was about to kill him. We decided to show ourselves, and when he saw us, he supposed us to be another prey, as we had hoped. He left the poor man in his hole and came out after us. So we pummeled him, and he vigorously fought back, but in the end we brought him down to the ground and cut off his head. We set it up by the wayside to frighten any others that would practice such ungodliness. And to prove I'm telling you the truth, here is the man himself who can affirm every word, for he is the one who was snatched like a lamb from the mouth of the lion. Mr. Feeblemind nodded his head. He speaks the truth to my cost and comfort. My cost when he threatened to pick my bones over and over again, and to my comfort when I saw Mr. Greatheart and his friends equipped with their weapons as they approached so near for my deliverance. Mr. Holyman added, There are two things people who go on pilgrimage need, courage and a life free from moral stain. If they don't have courage, they can never bolster their way, and if they live loose lives, they will make the very name of a pilgrim stink. I hope this warning isn't needed among this group, Mr. Lovesaint said. But really, there are many who walk the road who rather say they are strangers to pilgrimage than admit they are strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That's true, Mr. Dare Not Lie added. They don't have the pilgrim's clothing, nor the pilgrim's courage. They don't walk with an upright heart, but walk in a way that is neither straight nor true. One shoe turns inward, the other outward, and their stockings are on the outside nothing but a torn rag to the ridicule of their lord. These things ought to be disturbing, Mr. Penitent said, for the pilgrims are not likely to have that grace put upon them and their pilgrims' progress as they desire until the way is cleared of such spots and blemishes. In this way they passed the time talking until supper was set upon the table. Then they went in and ate. The meal refreshed their weary bodies, and they turned in for the night and went to bed. Now they stayed in the fair a long time at the house of Mr. Nason. Over time he gave his daughter Grace to Samuel, Christian's son, to be his wife, and his daughter Martha to Joseph. The reason they were able to stay here so long was that things had changed from the time when Christian had visited the fair. The pilgrims grew to know many of the good people of the town, and did for them whatever service they could. Mercy, as was her custom, worked hard to help the poor, and their bellies and backs blessed her for it. She was an example to her profession there, and to tell the truth, Grace, Phoebe, and Martha all had an easy-going and pleasing nature. They did much good, each in their own way, and all were very fruitful, so that Christian's name, as was said before, was like it was alive in the world. While they stayed here, a monster came out of the woods and slew many of the children of the town. It would carry away their children and teach them to suckle its whelps. Now no man in the town dared to face this monster. All of them fled at the very noise of its coming. The monster was unlike any beast on the earth. Its body was like a dragon and it had seven heads and ten horns. 
It brought great devastation and destruction to the lives of the children, and yet it was governed by a woman. Scripture So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman seated upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Revelation 17, verse 3 This monster proposed certain conditions to men, and those men who loved their lives more than their souls accepted these conditions, so they came under the beast's authority. Now Greatheart, along with those who came to visit the pilgrims at Nason's house, agreed to go and engage this beast, thinking they might deliver the people of this town from the paws and mouth of this devouring serpent. So Greatheart, along with Mr. Contrite, Mr. Holyman, Mr. Darenothlai, and Mr. Penitent, went forth with their weapons to meet the monster. At first, the monster was unchecked. It looked upon the pilgrims as enemies with great disdain. But being hardy men, skilled with their weapons, they thrashed him until he retreated. Then they returned to Nason's house. It is worth noting that the monster had certain seasons when he came out to make his attempts upon the children of the town. During these seasons, these valiant and important pilgrims watched him and continued to assault him. Over time, he wasn't just wounded but became lame. As a result, that devastation of the townsmen's children doesn't happen like it used to. Some truly believe that this beast will die of his wounds. This made Greatheart and his fellow pilgrims famous in this town. Even though many of the people still had an appetite for worldly things, they highly regarded the pilgrims with reverent esteem and respect. For this reason, these pilgrims were not hurt or put under much pressure. However, some of the more vile sort, who were as blind as moles and lacked understanding, still showed no reverence for these men and paid no attention to their valor and daring adventures.